If you know me that well, or even if you don't know me that well, you may know that I am a bit of a perfectionist. And if you've ever worked with me, you know that that's an understatement. I have pretty high standards. I'm very detailed, goal-oriented. I'm task-driven. I'm hard on myself. I expect uh, uh, high standards for myself, but I also expect them of others. And sometimes I love this fact about myself because it guarantees that if I'm given a task that I'm going to get it done, get it done on time, probably even early, and that I'm going to put everything that I've got into it, 120%. But sometimes I don't like this truth about myself because being a perfectionist sometimes means that I have this bulldozer like mentality, ready to bulldoze over whatever's standing in the way of me getting a job done. And sometimes that means people And oftentimes I don't realize the damage that's done until uh, the task and the job is finished and I'm able to look back. I've actually always been this way. This past week as I was preparing for the message, I kind of chuckled because I've pulled off this book off my bookshelf, Overcoming Perfectionism. (laughs) This was given to me in high school by a teacher. (laughs) I've never read it. She saw and was glad that I, you know, turned my stuff in, that I did all of those things, but she also saw the fault in it. Now, over time, this fact about me, it started to, had starting to wane a little bit, simply because I'm growing tired of not being able to meet all of my own standards. And also, as you grow up, you get a lot more responsibilities, and I realize you can't give 120% to everything. Sometimes there's bigger fish to fry. And probably the more I think about it, it's a little bit of maturity of just realizing how fruitless it can be at times. But the reason I was thinking about that and self-reflecting this week is because um, I've been having this internal battle in my mind as I've wrestled with our text for this morning. We've been in this series on the book of Galatians, and so far, chapters 1 through 4, we have learned that left to our own devices, we are doomed, doomed, doomed. When it comes to our righteousness before God, we are guilty. We deserve the full wrath of God because we've broken the pure and perfect law of God. Whereas Paul says in Galatians 3, Tim, we're under a curse. Look at it with me. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. See, this is why the cross of Jesus is necessary. This is why we need the good news of the gospel, because we are cursed and will not be justified by God. We are guilty. Galatians 3.11, clearly no one who relies on the law will be justified before God. And this is the plight of every man, young and old, rich and poor, white and black, male, female, tall and short. However, Paul tells us in verse 13 of chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole, or other translations say, a tree. Paul says here in Galatians 3.13, the same thing that he says over in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. These two passages are telling us the same thing, that Jesus, who was sinless and who was not cursed, became sin and a curse so that you and I, who are cursed and full of sin, might be redeemed and declared righteous. 
Another way of putting that is because Jesus kept the commandments and suffered the penalty, you and I, even though we've broken the commandments, we get to escape the penalty. We trade places with Jesus. This is the freedom in Christ. This is grace. This right here is the gospel. It's what our faith has its basis in. We have been set free by Christ, free from the weight and guilt that sin brings. And so far in our study of Galatians, that's what we've been looking at. Really, we could summarize the first four chapters of Galatians with just these few words that Paul starts chapter 5 off with. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And right here, Paul could sit his pen down and stop writing. I could turn off my mic and sit down and end the message. Those who are reading the book could just close it and finish and stop reading altogether. You who are listening could just stop listening from here on out because that's it. This is the gospel message. It's the story and the message of the Bible that Jesus' death on the cross was final, that it's sufficient for covering, forgiving, and washing clean our sins. And up to this point, without hearing or reading anything else, someone could easily think to themselves, okay, I got it. My sin is too great. I've messed up. There's nothing I can do to earn God's favor. I can't keep enough rules to be justified before him. And he has set me free. Yes, it cost him everything, but there's never anything I could do to pay him back. So why does anything else matter? Can I just continue to do what I've always done? Is God going to forgive me? Does it really matter if I change all that much? You may be thinking to yourself, that's a crazy conclusion to come to. To think that we can stop the message of the gospel right there? Or that someone would come to such a crazy conclusion? But it wasn't that strange of a conclusion for the Apostle Paul. He actually thought that those who were reading his letter would come to that very conclusion. That's the whole reason he keeps writing. And he gives this full warning in verse 1. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free, but stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul knows that a very logical conclusion to hearing and receiving the message of the gospel could be that someone thinks, I'm free to do whatever I want. In the book of Romans, Paul does exactly the same thing. In Romans chapters 1 through 5, he presents the message of the gospel to his readers, and then he starts off chapter 6 in this way, what shall we say then, brethren? Are we to go on sinning so that grace may abound? And then he says, may it never be. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Paul knew the danger and the risk of presenting the gospel, that people can come to this conclusion that we're free to do whatever we want. But because of that reason, Paul doesn't change the message of the gospel. He continues to preach and present the gospel just as it is, a free gift to be received by faith, one that cannot be earned by works of the law. However, that's not the whole story. Although Paul sees how someone can get to that kind of conclusion, he doesn't think it's the right conclusion to come to. That's the reason he has this warning to stand firm. It's the reason why he says, may it never be. It's the whole reason he continues to write. And we have Galatians chapter 5 and 6. It's the reason we have chapters of Romans like 6, 7, and 8. Yes, the cross of Christ has set you and I free, but God is not finished with us yet. And here's where... I'm struggling with our text because if I say we're not saved by works, but God is not finished with me yet and there is still work to be done, then how can I really say I'm not saved by works? 
And in order to resolve this tension that I've seen in the text, there's something you and I need to first learn about sin. See, sin, at its very core, is a violation of the character of God. Oftentimes, we use this definition for sin. It's very simple. Disobeying God. That's a really good definition. And what we mean by that is that we have broken or we have failed to keep the law and the rule of God. Because God is the eternal creator of the universe, he's also the ruler. It's his world. It belongs to him. He gets to rule. He's in charge. He gets to determine morality. It's like my mama always said. It's my house, my... Oh, it's like your mama said that too. And that's fair, right? It's her house. It belongs to her. She gets to set the rules. And the same is true of God. It's his world. It belongs to him, so he gets to set the rules. But here's the thing about God. He doesn't set his rules and his law arbitrarily. The law and the standard of God is his own character. For example, most of us know that one of the commandments of the Old Testament is thou shalt not lie or bear false witness. That command is founded in the character of God. Because the Bible tells us that God is the God of all truth. Matter of fact, over in the book of Titus, it tells us that God cannot lie. So to lie is to not only break his command, but also to violate his very nature and character. An illustration of that, I know it's not perfect, but maybe it can help us understand this, is when bad things happen to good people. Man, we get so angry about that, don't we? And why? Why do we get so angry about bad things happening to good people? Because a good person, they're innocent. They don't deserve that that bad thing happening to them, and yet it has. And the same is true of God. He's all good, he's perfect, he's holy and pure, and sin violates his character. And this is the reason the cross is necessary, because of our guilt. Just as in our own judicial systems, someone has to pay for a wrong that is done. In our courts, that may be a monetary fine, time in prison, or community service. But in God's judicial system, It's an eternity in separation from him. He cannot be near those who have violated his character. We have to pay, or someone's got to pay. And the Bible says we can't pay in this life, for the wages of sin is death. And so we put our faith in the cross of the Son of God, Jesus himself, God in the flesh, whose death on the cross was an equivalent of an eternity in hell for all mankind. See, sin brings guilt, And I'm not talking about a feeling of guilt. I'm talking about a status of being guilty. However, because of the cross of Christ, our status can be changed from guilty to innocent. Paul says it best in Galatians 3.24, until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. There's that judicial term, justified. That term means declared righteous. And that's what the cross does. It justifies us through faith. So it removes our guilt. And this right here is what we often focus on when it comes to salvation. And rightfully so, should I say. But the lesson we need to learn this morning about sin is not just that sin makes us guilty. Sin also weakens our moral willpower. Sin is a violation of the character of God. However, God also created you and I in his image, meaning that you and I were created to reflect the character of God. 
So when we sin, we begin to damage that image that we were created in. Sin makes us weak. The more we sin, the harder it is to overcome that sin. Sin does something inside of us that messes up our moral compass and that image that we were created in. The best illustration I could think of with this is addictions. For some people, it's just one time, one look, one taste, one try, and they're hooked. They can't seem to overcome it. Now, there's other people it takes more than once, but the picture still applies. Sin weakens our moral willpower. It makes us weak. It's what Paul means when he says in verse 1, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Sin makes us a slave to itself. We cannot overcome it on our own. The more we try to stop doing it, the more we find ourselves falling into it. And that's the plight of the flesh. We're not strong enough to overcome our sin. Just as you and I can't pay the penalty for our sin, we also can't overcome the power of sin. But here is the good news. Here is the full gospel message. The cross of Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, and the resurrection of Jesus established for us a new way of life. That means the good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus died, but that three days later he rose back to life. And what that means for you and me is that not only did God take care of our sin guilt problem, he's also taking care of our sin weakness problem. And he's doing that through a resurrection that's happening in our own lives. Here is what we know to be true from the scriptures, that the Holy Spirit is the divine person that raised Jesus from the dead. He's the one that brought about the resurrection. That's what Paul tells us over in Romans 8.11, but I want you to catch what else he says. He says, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. See, it's the very death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus playing out in every single Christian's life. We die to sin. It no longer has this weight over our head. And then we are made alive together with Christ Jesus when the Spirit comes and gives us the power to live a new life. He raises us from the dead. And when we look at our Christian life through those lens and through that illustration, we see to come to that crazy conclusion that I can now do whatever I want is ludicrous and preposterous. Or to think that the gospel message ends at the cross is just absurd. You and I, we've been given a second chance. Why would we want to go back to a life that caused us pain, a life that only caused hurt, a life of weakness, a life of slavery? Paul called the Galatians to stand firm. He says it best in verse 13 and following in chapter 5 when he says, You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity, a chance to indulge the appetite, to return to that past life before Christ. Rather, use that freedom as an opportunity to love others, to return to the image that God created you in from the very beginning. And it's only when we free ourselves from the slavery of both rule-keeping and self-indulgence will we understand what true freedom in Christ means. Paul goes on and exhorts and commands the Galatian Christians to walk by the Spirit. Listen to what he says. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, to walk by the Spirit shows direction, action, a goal, 
but also a companion guide along the way. And Paul says that when this is how we choose to live, when we choose to follow the guide and the direction that the Spirit gives, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Now, let's be honest, that doesn't mean that we will never ever sin again, but what it does mean is that when we fix our eyes and our direction on the Spirit, on the goal that the Spirit has set for us, our backs are turned to what brings about guilt and weakness. It's what Paul meant over in Romans in 8 and 5 when he said, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things that the Spirit desires. It's all about where our minds are set. If we, and the truth is, we cannot get these two things confused. They are nothing alike. Back in Galatians, Paul writes, For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with one another, so that you're not to do whatever you want. These two things, our flesh, our sinful desires, and the Spirit of God, they're complete opposites. They're contrary to one another. The flesh wants what the Spirit forbids, and the Spirit demands what the flesh resists. One commentator puts it best when he says, when people give their flesh the right to rule their lives, they will occasionally and accidentally do what God wants for them. The selfish life, then, cannot be a spiritual life. The flesh says, gratify yourself. The Spirit says, love others. These two things, the flesh, the spirit, they are at war inside of the Christian. They're like two armed forces entrenched for battle, an inner turmoil trapped in a body of death that has no concern for right and wrong. And it's here that many well-meaning Christians, in the discussion, they close up their Bibles and they say, so let's go fight that battle, fight the good fight, keep the faith, work out your salvation, and try hard to resist what's evil. And my own perfectionist mentality, oh, it loves that kind of message because it's all about me putting everything I got into it. And although there is times that I love that kind of message, as I shared earlier, I've come to realize I can't control everything. I can't figure it all out. I can't make everything perfect on my own. So even a message like that is not sufficient even for a perfectionist, even for someone who has a ton of drive and self-motivation. Some of you uh, may be watching the Right Now media video series on the book of Galatians as a part of your life group. It's from teaching pastor at Southeast Christian Church, Kyle Eidelman. And in this week's video on chapter 5, Kyle begins the whole video sharing the story of a man who had recently started attending their church in Louisville, who had grown up in the church and stopped attending in college, and Kyle just inquires of why. Why did you stop going in the first place? And here's how Kyle retells the whole story. Here is what he said, talking about the man. When I was growing up, I felt like every Sunday we would go to church and the message was always the same. And I said, could you summarize that for me? What message did you feel like you were hearing? And here's what the man said. The message I heard every Sunday was, thanks for playing, try again next week. And immediately, I recognized what he was talking about. Every weekend at church, every message was, hey, just try harder. You're just not trying hard enough. If you tried a little bit harder, maybe you would be good enough. And this is the tension in the text that I'm talking about. And the tension, really, is not in the text itself. It's between me and the text. Because I can relate to that man. I grew up hearing a similar message, that we're saved by grace, but you keep your salvations by your works, by continuing to work. 
And so the tension that I'm having is, how can we say that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation and then say that God is not finished with us yet, if there's still some work that needs to be done? And it's because of that reason that we had to learn that lesson about sin. Because as we established, sin creates in us two problems, a double trouble of sorts. It causes us to be guilty, but it also causes us to be weak. And the cross of Christ delivers us from the guilt, and then the Spirit who brought about the resurrection is living inside of those who've surrendered their life to Christ, giving us power to overcome our weakness. That's why Paul tells us, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. We have seen so far in this book of Galatians that the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, the Old Testament, the law that those Jewish Christians were trying to demand those Gentile Christians to follow was not enough to take care of our double trouble. Because although the law can condemn our our behavior and make us aware of our sin, it was powerless when it came to helping us change in any permanent way. The law only brings death, but the Spirit, He brings life. See, the gospel not only takes care of our sin-guilt problem, the gospel does something the law could never do. It gives us the power to overcome the weakness that sin brings, to overcome the sinful desires, to overcome the fight between the flesh. And in this video series, or in this video, Kyle goes on to make this point that the gospel is not about trying, but about relying, relying on the work of the Spirit in our lives. And he compares all of this to a power strip, an electrical power strip. And you can imagine one with me here, right? It has all of these uh, outlets that you can plug things into, right? And let's say that you've bought uh, a new entertainment center for your living room, your man cave, whatever it may be. So you plug in your TV, you, you plug in your sound system, your gaming system, whatever else you may have, and then you've got one outlet left. And so you think, oh, great, perfect. I'll just take the electrical, the electrical power strip and plug it into itself, And then you go over and turn on the TV and it's not working. Ah, it must be the batteries, right? No, no, no. You know what it is. The power strip does does not have power in and of itself. It needs to be plugged into a power source. And this is often how we live and how many Christians operate and think. If I just work harder, if I just try harder, if I just do a little bit more, if I can just work up that inner willpower, I'll overcome this thing. But just like with the power strip... It needs to be plugged into a power source. And the Christian life is not about trying, but about relying on the power source that we've been given. Again, Galatians 5.18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. This verse tells us about that power source and how we can rely on it. The power source is nothing less than the third divine person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And you and I can rely on his power when we are led by him. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, the surest, truest, and most clear way is through the teachings and principles of the Scriptures. If we're going to be led by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, or go in the direction that the Spirit leads, we need to know what direction He's pointing us to. And this right here, the Spirit-inspired Word of God, is the most clear, most true way that you and I can know what direction we're supposed to be heading in. And I assure you that God's word will never misguide you about the direction of the Spirit. But is that all? 
has he really retired from the field of battle while Satan is alive and well, able to prod and tempt and suggest and urge us to do evil, and all we're saying that the Spirit is is some retired author? No, 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 no. The Spirit is a living and powerful person that is indwelling the Christ follower. And this verse, to be led by the Spirit, can be misunderstood. There's many people who have taken this verse and and the work of the Spirit and made it into a small inner voice or a feeling or a sense that I get. And I don't want to entirely discredit that because if you are faced with a situation and you get the sense that it's wrong, I, I shouldn't be doing this, and you can look into God's Word and see that, yes, it is morally wrong, then chances are that prompting that sense is from the Spirit. But the reason I say we can't just rely on our feelings and on that inner small voice is because we're still living in the flesh. We can easily be deceived. We have to constantly compare every inner prompting and measure it up against what we know to be true about the Spirit's will in the Scriptures. But even still, even still, that prompting, that urging, that feeling, that sense, it's not the main work of the Spirit in our lives. It is true, you and I do need a reminder about what God's will is, but we know what God's will is. We've been given His will, and Paul knows this too. He says in our text for this morning, verse 19, the acts of the flesh, they're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's pretty clear. These things They're morally wrong, and we have clear access to the will of the Spirit. So that's why I'm saying that the main work of the Spirit is not those promptings or urgings that something's wrong or that something's right. The main work of the Spirit is not to teach us a new way, but to give us strength to do what we already know we ought to do. The main work of the Spirit in the life of the believer is to give them that power over sin, to make us pure. It's what Paul means when he says in Romans 8.26 that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Or over in Ephesians in 3 and 16 when he says, May he strengthen you with power through the Spirit in your inner being. The work of the Spirit in our life is to give us power to both want to do what is right and then to actually do it. And when we are led by the Spirit and we allow the Spirit's, word, Spirit's power to work inside of us, something changes. A fruit of sorts is produced. Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, there's one thing I know to be true about fruit. I'm not a farmer. I'm not an expert in agriculture. I'm not even a specialist in botany. I know that surprises you. But I do know you can plant a seed in good fertilized soil. You can make sure that a plant has enough but not too much sunlight. You can make sure that a plant has enough but not too much water. Actually, I'm sure there's a lot of things you can do to help the growing environment of plants. But there's one thing you cannot do, and that's make a plant produce fruit. And the same is true in our lives. The same is true in our lives. It doesn't mean 
This doesn't mean that someone who's not a Christian and doesn't have the Spirit can't show the fruits of the Spirit. No, we see that in our lives and around the world all the time. But what it does mean for the Christian is that through the indwelling of the Spirit, we have power because the Holy Spirit is able to directly energize our wills and empower us to produce that fruit far beyond what our own efforts could achieve. And this morning, I don't want you to get the wrong idea here. This does not mean that as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit and we just sit around and wait for him to make that change inside of us as if it's going to happen in our sleep or as we sit passively by. It's just like in an open heart surgery. In open heart surgery, you're given a new heart and you can lay in that hospital bed and not do anything, choose not to do any kind of therapy and not allow that heart to do the work that it was meant to do. Or you can get up. You can do a little bit of that physical therapy and allow that heart to do what it was meant to do. And this applies to the spiritual heart change that happens in us when we surrender our lives to Christ. We cannot just sit sit passively by. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, the point doesn't end here. Paul goes on and he says, for it is God who is at work in you to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So it's the Spirit who does the work, but we have to allow that work to happen. Even in our text this morning, it implies the same idea. When it says live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, it implies that we do some living, that we do some walking. Even to be led by the Spirit implies that you have to allow someone else to do the process of leading you. It's the Spirit's way. It's by the Spirit's power. See, in the old way of doing things, under the law, it was about trying to keep all of these commands on our own. Now, even under the new way of doing things, under grace, in the gospel, it doesn't mean that we get to stop obeying the laws. Matter of fact, every one of the fruits of the Spirit are stated as commands in the New Testament. Check out this slide. Every one of them. I have them as commands somewhere stated in the New Testament. The first one there, John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. We can look at all of those. So to be free doesn't mean that at any point we get to stop obeying God's laws. We've already made that point. It's a ludicrous, preposterous conclusion to come to. However, we've also said that it can't be that I have to muster up the power in myself either. That's why we need the Spirit. So how does that work? If it's about relying, but I can't just sit passively by, how does it all work? Well, in the new way, under grace, in the gospel, to be free in Christ means that unlike in the old covenant, we are able to obey God not by law observance, but by living by the Spirit. So we still have to obey and do some work, but it's done by living by the Spirit. So what does that mean? How can we allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit? If it's by His power, but we can't just sit passively, then what must we do? And this morning, I want to suggest to you nine things that you and I can do that would allow us to rely on the power of the Spirit in our lives, to live by the Spirit. This list was adopted from Dr. Jack Cottrell, a professor of mine at the university in, in Cincinnati. And he called this list the Eightfold Path to Christian Sanctification. Now, he had eight things. I've added one more to the list this morning because I think it's important. But let's look at those nine things that you and I can do to rely on the Spirit's power in our life. The first one is information. We cannot begin to be holy until we have the information that tells us about 
both what is sinful and what it means to be holy. And the only sure way to get that information is through the Spirit-inspired Word of God, the Bible. This means that we have to be diligent students of the Word, but we can't just take the information in. We also have to apply it to our lives. It requires a serious study of God's Word and meditation upon its ethical teachings. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul tells us all of the scriptures are God-breathed and they are useful for the purpose of teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The second thing we can do is awareness. That's what this morning is all about, helping you become aware that as a Christ follower, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and he is there for the very purpose of giving you the power to become holy. The third is desire. We must, above all, desire to be rid of sin and be personally holy. Man, if I don't desire to make any kind of change in my life, chances are that change is not going to happen. But when we desire to be rid of sin and to live a godly life, then we begin to allow the Spirit to make that change inside of us. The fourth is prayer. Prayer is how we communicate with God. And so when it comes to prayer, we can pray for the Spirit's power to work in our lives, to aid us and to help us overcome specific sins and grow in specific ways. Now, these are not generic prayers, by the way. They're focused, specific prayers where we are confessing specific sins, opening up our hearts to God, praying that the Spirit would help us not only to get rid of the sin, but even the desire to commit the sin. Number five is surrender a confession to ourselves, and more importantly, a confession to God about our own personal weakness and helplessness in overcoming sin and also our dependence on the Spirit's power. See, as a Christian, you've already done this. You've surrendered your life to Christ. You said, I can't accomplish salvation on my own. I need the cross of Jesus. Same is true here. We're saying, I can't overcome sin on my own. I need the help and the power that the Spirit brings. Number six is trust. We must continue to trust that God will keep his promises. He is a faithful God including the promise of the indwelling spirit who strengthens you with power. The Christian life, it is a struggle. But don't grow weary. Don't give up. Continue to trust. Number seven is action. Now, once we've gone through those first six steps, we then need to take responsibility for our Christian growth and maintain self-control. You and I, we have free will. We have choice. We're not in a puppet show here. So we must make a conscious decision to resist temptation and do what's right. Number eight, and this is the one that I've added to the list, is Christian community. When we lock ourselves up and try to live our life in isolation of other Christians, we put ourselves in danger. See, one of the major roles of the church in our weekly gatherings is to edify the saints. And what that means is that a part of the purpose of us meeting together is to encourage one another, to build each other up. So if you're living out over here by yourself, you're missing out on the opportunity to be encouraged, to be built up for someone else to point out the wrong in your life, but also to gently restore you to move toward the good that God has for you. It's allowing the Spirit to work through others. And the last thing that you and I can do to rely on the Spirit's power, and I don't want you to miss this one, it's important, is thanksgiving. Giving thanks to God for His Spirit and accrediting every work, every change in your life to what He has done for you. Looking, past at your, looking back at your life, realizing where you've come and giving God all the praise, all the credit for every victory. Paul even says that here in our text this morning. 
In verses 25 and 26, he says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. Other translations say boastful, provoking and envying each other. We can't become boastful or proud because we didn't do this. All the glory, all the praise, all the victory, it belongs to God. So give thanks to Him for it. Here's what I love about the message of the gospel is it humbles us, doesn't it? It tells us we're not good enough, that I'll never be perfect in my own efforts or trying on my own, no matter how much of a perfectionist I am. I'll never be good enough to win the favor of God or to overcome the power of sin. But here's the beautiful message of the gospel. Here's the part that I love, that in our weakness, God has shown his great power and he bestowed on me his favor when he put the full wrath of G- on Jesus at the cross and he gives me a power source the indwelling holy spirit for which i can rely on to overcome the power that sin has in my life and now that i'm free of having to gain god's favor through my good works and through keeping the law and I'm free from trying to overcome the power of sin on my own, I can look to God's perfect law, to His rule, to His character, and obey. Not out of fear, not out of guilt, not out of trying to be good enough, but obey. Obey out of love and out of gratitude. There is no other way of life that offers this kind of good news. Freedom from the guilt of sin and freedom from the power of sin. Church, we have been set free to live free by the Spirit. We've been set free to live free by the Spirit, to be restored to that perfect image-bearing creatures we were created to be from the very beginning. Let's pray. God, you are most powerful and high glorious and radiant and we give you all the honor and the glory today because in our weakness you have shown your great might because of our sin we've become guilty before you and because of our own sin we are weak but you and your love sent Jesus to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And you and your love give us the gift of the Spirit to live inside of us, to give us the power over sin. So we give you thanks, we give you honor, we give you glory, and I pray, O oh God, that we would continue to walk and keep in step with your Spirit, that we would live by the Spirit day by day. And all this we pray in the name of the risen Lord, the name of Jesus. Amen.